What's Shaken? You are listening to episode 46 of Hurdle, a podcast that talks to everyone from entrepreneurs to CEOs and athletes about how they got through tough times, hurdles of sorts, by leaning into wellness. Emily Abadi here coming at you with some fire today from Danielle Bruno. She's the president and CEO of Tender Greens, a California-based fast casual chain that serves the most delicious, seasonal, responsibly sourced foods. I'm personally amped because the first of many Tender Greens locations opened here in New York City not too long ago near Union Square. I actually just walked by where their other location is going to be by Bryant Park. Uh, Trust me, their seared Mediterranean steak salad is to die for. Today's episode is brought to you by Jaybird. Different runs have different vibes when it comes to if I'm listening to a hype up playlist or my favorite podcasts, but regardless, good headphones make all the difference. Right now, my listeners can receive 20% off of a pair of the just released Run XT true wireless headphones and free shipping through the end of March. Head on over to jaybirdsport.com and use the code HURDLE to take advantage. Again, that's jaybirdsport.com. Use the code HURDLE for 20% off a pair of their new headphones. This episode's also brought to you by Athletic Greens. You know when you reach for a green juice and it just tastes like you're drinking grass? Yeah, this is nothing like that. Athletic Greens tastes refreshing and contains 12 servings of fruits and vegetables, giving me the boost I need to start every day off right. They are offering Hurdle listeners a special deal. It's 20 travel packs and $99 value absolutely free with your first purchase. Just head on over to athleticgreens.com slash hurdle to claim it. No code necessary. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash hurdle. Now let's talk about Danielle. Danielle is one of the most laid back CEOs I've had the chance of talking to since starting the pod. And in her words, she tells me in today's episode that she was born to stand out. The California native knew from a young age a few things. One, that she was a lesbian and two, that she had a passion for leadership, which is no wonder why her resume is loaded with past gigs at big brands like Pete's Coffee and Tea, Macy's, Apple and Dry Bar. Today, she talks about owning her, quote, executive presence, something that was criticized heavily throughout her rise to the top. And we talk about the aha moment that happened when she was running around a lake in Oakland that changed her life forever for the better. If you're hunting for takeaways, there are plenty here. One of my favorite quotes from today's episode, she says, it's the things that make you stand out that make you successful, not the things that make you fit in. Yeah, this one's a gem, I promise. Hit me up at Hurdle Podcast, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Shout out to all of you. Hurdle's Instagram is now at 3,000 followers strong and growing. Also, shout out to Laura, who emailed me this week over at emily at hurdle.us, looking for some advice and tips for an anxious first time marathoner. Girl, I have been there. I know how you feel. For first timers, all I can say is just enjoy the process. It's a big accomplishment, and getting to the start is major within itself. Itself. Crossing the finish line, also big. And it doesn't matter how long it takes you. All you need to know is that when you get there, it's a reminder that with dedication and hard work, you can do anything you set your mind to. On that note, exciting news, hurdlers. I'm going to be launching a 10-minute bonus episode once weekly, each of which will focus in on a topic that you guys are reaching out to me with questions about, whether that's tips for success on how to be a morning person or stick to an exercise routine or even becoming your own boss, which in my case, took a solid two years to say I feel like I'm not totally screwing up this whole thing. Anyway, some days I'll even have a little help on these hurdle moment blips from guests and friends and so on. It's all a little experimental right now, so uh, it's coming soon. And I'd love your feedback on what you want to hear about. So please send me your DMs, send me emails, let me know how I can help you. Again, my email, it's emily at hurdle. I think that's it. As always, rate, review in the iTunes store. I really appreciate your feedback. And with that, let's get to hurdling. Today, I'm sitting here with Danielle Bruno. She's the president and CEO of Tender Greens. Hey. Hi. How you doing? Great. Great. Always a good thing, even though it's raining and the teachers are on strike in L.A. Yep. <laughs> yep. We're going to deal with it. We're going to deal with it. Really excited to be here because I feel like 
Uh, Tender Greens just opened in New York City. I want to talk to my audience a little bit about uh, the company because there are 29 locations in three states, so it's not everywhere yet. Not yet. So talk to me about what Tender Greens is. So Tender Greens is probably would be considered in the fast casual category, but Tender Greens really is the kind of place where you get a five-star meal for a three-star price. Mm -hmm. We source all of our food from the best possible sources. We have executive chefs in every location and we make food from scratch daily. So you're really getting a gourmet meal um, for the price of what you would pay going to, I, I won't name any other places, but you know, <laughs> I mean, you can get an amazing steak plate with mashed potatoes and some seasonal greens for, you know, less than $15. Well, that was, gonna, that was gonna be my next yeah. question. So like, what kind of food are you getting when you walk in the door? Well, we're called Tender Greens, but our best seller is a steak plate. <laughs> so um, there's some, sometimes there's a little bit of a naming challenge as a result, but we sell, we do sell salads like people expect, but we also sell a lot of fish. We sell steak, chicken. Um, we sell an amazing fried chicken sandwich. Mm. So, uh, but but all of it is really based on a culinary background. So I would say it's the best version of anything out there. So talk to me a little bit about your background. Do you have a background in food? I don't. Okay. <laughs> I don't have a background in food. Where um, are you from? Where I have a background from? in eating. I'm Perfect. I'm good at that. Yeah, I've been doing that for a while. Um, my background's really, so the through line is um, my background's in people. So I love the consumer that eats in our space, and I love the kind of employee that's drawn to this kind of a business. So. I've worked at a lot of different kinds of consumer companies that are all best in class in what they do. Prior to coming to Tender Greens, I was actually at Dry Bar, where I was president of retail there. And I was there for about three and a half years and opened, I think, 70 locations with them. Wow. Prior to that, I was at Pete's Coffee, and I held a variety of jobs. So the last, I think, was uh, vice president of retail strategy. And uh, I've worked in a few other places, probably most notably, I opened the first Apple retail stores. Oh, wow. So I was uh, one of the seven people hired to be part of the team and hired by Ron Johnson to create that project. And I was there for about five years, and that was fascinating. So the, the thing I always say is the same woman who would eat at Tender Greens, would get a blowout, would you know drink Pete's coffee, would buy an Apple computer. So there is a lane and there is a through line, but it's not in the restaurant industry. Can you give me like a snippet of insight into what a VP of retail strategy or like what, what that looks yeah. like, like what kind of things that person does? Yeah, I mean, it, it varies a little bit depending on the company and the company size, but broadly speaking, it's everything from deciding where the location should be. So real estate, um, often the design and the flow of the, the business, um, the marketing strategy, always the, the operations of the business. So that's the whole customer journey, the deployment for the team. Um, it can also include things like training and uh, other HR functions, but broadly speaking, it's everything from soup to nuts when a customer walks into the door to get whatever product they're getting and, and the point they leave, it's basically the person who's thinking about the journey the whole way and imagining how to create a strategy to make that improve over the course of time. When you were starting out in this industry, like on your career path, did you know that there was a person that was in charge of no. all of those things? No, God, no, no. <laughs> and I definitely didn't want to be in retail. Right. No, I um, I started out my career at Macy's West in Union Square in San Francisco. And you're from California originally? I'm from California. So I started in Macy's West in, in Union Square and I thought, okay, well, this is a great job to have after college and it'll be fun and it'll buy me time to figure out what I want to do. And... I ended up being good at it and good at it in ways that were different than the reasons other people were good at it, which I can elaborate on. But basically, in my time there, I learned that I had sort of a unique management style that really worked for this industry. And it was because of that style that I ended up being recruited to Apple to be part of that team. So, you know, being part of the Apple team, I had the opportunity to build the stores, build the policies, the systems that, you know, work on every single part of it. And that sort of solidified my future. And, in retail. I've got to ask you, like, what was so unique? What was so unique? Well, there's a few things that were unique about it. One is it was basically a, you know, $2 billion startup. So we had the opportunity to do everything from scratch. You know, usually when you come into a retail organization, there's um, all kinds of legacy stuff that you have to deal with. And many times they say, well, if I had been here when that decision was made, I would have done that differently. And whether it's around the design or the technology or the training program, there's always something that could be better, could be upgraded that's hard to change. 
this was an opportunity to start from scratch with a lot of money behind us and a company name behind us and a philosophy that really allowed us to build what you know I think is arguably the best retail concept in the world. Mm-hmm. And that was because you know Apple did stand for something. It's hard to remember back then because it's been a while now. But you know Apple wasn't a household name when I started at, at Apple. Um, we had four and a half percent market penetration, and a lot of people didn't know who Apple was outside of California. Mm-hmm. So growing the Apple business through retail was a huge bet. It paid off. But um, it wasn't a guaranteed success. But luckily, because we had the funds and the support behind us, we were able to create an amazing experience. And similar to Starbucks, I think it was one of the few places that actually created a gathering space for like-minded people. And that's not something that ever had been considered in the world of technology before. Right. Wow. You've had a pretty awesome seat at the table on a lot of these really prominent companies. And I think to hold these positions, it takes a lot of confidence. Have you always considered yourself to be a confident person? I have. Yeah? Actually. Yeah. It's, it's, um, I have no good reason for it. I really was confident as a kid, despite, you know, being in situations where I probably should have been a little bit more humble. I've just always been confident. I can't say I've had, you know, a lot of, you know, tons of, a ton of other innate skills, but for some reason I have always been confident. As a kid. So where, so where did you grow up in California? I grew up in the Valley. Yeah. I grew up in the Valley. Elaborate on the Valley. Yeah. For the oh, people. right. So, right. Sorry. <laughs> the people sorry, wait, at home. No, there, wait, there are people who are not from LA. Let's make this podcast. <laughs> um, so I actually grew up in the San Fernando Valley. So okay. it's a suburb of LA. It's about 20 minutes north of here. Okay. All right. And you grew up in the Valley. Siblings, situation? Two younger brothers. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and university? Uh, I did my undergrad at UC Santa Cruz. Uh-huh. And then later I went to grad school at USF. Got it. And when you were in college, what were your ma- what were you majoring in? Social psychology, and uh, and then I majored in organizational design as a grad student. Okay. And you mentioned you were extremely confident, albeit there probably being some situations where you maybe should have taken a step back. Yeah. Can you articulate anything about that? Yeah, I think I can. Uh, I've actually given it a lot of thought, and um, I've just come up short with any good reason for it, but. Um, I just always had a lot of confidence. I was always uh, very self-assured. I was very physically active. My parents, um, I think they were also very confident people, so maybe that was part of it. My dad was actually a homicide detective for LAPD. Um, My mom was a stay-at-home mom for many years until they got divorced. But I was sort of the king of my street, the queen of my street. I don't know. I just, you know, I just was in charge of, actually it still exists to this day, I'm sort of in charge of the fun of my friends and I sort of organize things and I'm the person who's deciding what we're all going to do and I did that as a kid. And It sounds like you're in the sandlot. Yeah, they just just let me do it and so I just kind of took control and it just kind of worked out. So um, I have learned that, you know, in situations where you take control, people just tend to follow. So that was probably an interesting lesson for me as a kid. But, you know, when I was 12, my parents um, got divorced and it was a very ugly divorce. So I was actually happy they got divorced, which yeah. a lot of people are you know, sad when they say they hear their parents are getting divorced. But I was happy about it. And um, so it was a little weird because I grew up on this street with all the same group of friends until I was about 12. And then at 13, my mom moved us into a condo with two friends of hers. So we lived with uh, I lived with these three women who were, I don't know, I guess in their late 30s at the time. Did they all have kids? No, she was the only one who had kids, um, but they were single and kind of fun. Yeah. I mean, it was a it was a radical change from the very suburban nuclear family that I was raised in. Yeah. And, um, and I moved away from those friends. And so I, I became very different than them. Around almost that exact same time, I started to realize I was a lesbian. So it was kind of a lot at once. And sort of the otherness became um, apparent to me. When I say it, there's no good reasons for my confidence, the truth is the otherness didn't totally bother me. Yeah. It was, um, I knew I was different. I didn't totally know why. And I still today don't know if it was because of my orientation or something else. But I always felt different from other people. But that always felt kind of good to me because I never really totally wanted to fit in. I right. couldn't have if I wanted to, but right. 
I didn't really want to. It's kind of interesting that you come into this realization and all of a sudden you're in the situation where you're surrounded with so many what seems to be really strong women. Yes. <laughs> Actually, nobody's ever made that connection, but yeah. that's true. Um, it, it, your story a little bit all by definitely has its differences. Uh, I sat down with Sadie Lincoln, the founder of Bar 3, and uh, when she was growing up, she grew up with what she called aunties, which was her mother uh, took her and her brother Miguel, who founded WeWork, he took her and her brother Miguel to live with like some of her friends and they became her aunties and they all just like lived in this commune together because that's a total normal crazy upbringing and I mean the both of them have seemed to done quite well with that sort of situation but I mean everyone's different and so it's probably really special that you had that foundation of sorts to cite it being a little bit rocky it is really special and I mean that theme the theme of not living the standard life Um, And the value of that has continued to become more obvious to me as I've gotten older. What would you say some of the values that you learned during that time were that you've kind of carried along with you as you've come of age here? Mm -hmm. This this may be a leap, but I'm married now and Mm -hmm. I have two kids. And my wife came from a very typical family that was, you know, um, upper middle class and it was, you know, Everything was uh, very traditional, really smart family and and very successful. The relationship to what you just asked me and uh, my answer is, so my wife had, when we first had kids, a very particular view of how kids are supposed to be raised. Yeah. And I think she had probably a very standard view that a lot of people have when raising kids. I think when you're in any kind of minority, there's this hypercritical desire to be the best version of something. So it's like, we're a lesbian couple with kids, which means that we can't have any faults and we're just going to be the, you know, amazing archetype for, for everyone out there so that we can be a, a role model. And so I think in addition to her natural sense of like, these are the rules and this is how you're supposed to behave as a parent, I think that was an additional pressure for her. I've never had a sense of how things were supposed to be. Mm. I never had these rules that if you want your kid to be the certain way, this is how they'll grow up. I didn't grow up with that. And because I didn't grow up with it, and the people that I've known, including myself, who didn't grow up with that, actually ended up being more successful in many ways and just self-sufficient and confident. I think that there's some myths around what you know the what a nuclear family should look like or what a traditional family should be. I think we all, many of us, put a lot of pressure on ourselves to be a certain kind of way. And I only recently became aware of the term parent shaming. But, you know, there's a lot of people out there who feel like they're supposed to act in a certain way. They're supposed to completely change who they are when they become parents. And um, I, for better or for worse, didn't have that feeling. So it really played out in that way for me. Totally. I had um, a woman, her name is Allie Feller. She has a podcast herself called Allie on the Run. And she and I were talking about her quote unquote title because, you know, I introduced you on the pod and I'm like, Danielle is the CEO and president of Denver Greens. And Allie is like, well, I'm the host of the Allie on the Run show. But sometimes when I say that, people have children and they feel like the first thing they're supposed to say is, well, I'm a mom. Right. And I'm this and I'm that. And she says, I have this sense of guilt that I'm saying something wrong because mom isn't the first thing that comes out of my mouth. She was like, I love my baby. Like, Annie is my life. But... It, she doesn't define me every single second sure. of my day. She definitely contributes to who she is. Sure. But she's realized lately that she has some sort of mom guilt, that it's not the first thing she throws out into the world. I've never even said mom. Like, it's so funny that you say that. Now now I feel like I should have some mom guilt. <laughs> I don't actually have a lot of guilt because I had a resolution about five years ago where I stopped feeling guilt and it actually worked. It really worked. I know. Please teach me. I know. I know. It's just, it's um, probably another podcast. But well, you have to be really confident in the way that you carry yourself if you don't have any guilt. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, I I just, I I really want to learn. I don't know. Well, I I think I was telling you about my whole oxygen mask philosophy, which is. Well, tell that. Tell the. Yeah. So, so basically, when people are feeling bad that they're not behaving in a certain way and they're going to disappoint other people or they should be doing something a certain way or they're not responding or reacting in the way that they would expect. That doesn't resonate for me because my philosophy is 
you have to be the best version of yourself to be providing what you should be providing to other people. So mm -hmm. it's kind of put the oxygen mask on yourself before you put it on, you know, your child or whatever, because you have to stay present. You have to stay alert. You can't feel resentment and frustration that you're in an experience just because somehow you feel obligated. Right. And I think that's the worst version of guilt is, is people feeling obligated and doing things that actually negatively impact what they actually have to provide. Wow. There's a way that this could come across sounding really self-centered and really selfish. But for me, the first thought that goes through my mind is, is that what I want to be doing? Mm. Is that what I want to be doing? Is that what I want to be participating in? Is that the way that I want to show up? If it's not, then I just simply can't do it. Yeah. I love the term showing up. I think it's something that I've been working on a lot uh, in recent years is showing up and being entirely present for everything that I'm doing. If I'm going to make a commitment, if I'm going to go to something, if I'm going to do something, especially in this climate of us being so attached to our phones, it's like if I decided I wanted to show up, then I should show up. Totally. I have a bracelet that says present on it because it's really the most important quality to me. Yeah. Just being fully present at all times. That also means saying no. That also means if somebody invites you to something and you don't want to go or you can't go or you can't totally be there, that you just say no. Yeah. And that's totally acceptable. Yeah. No's, no's just an, an acceptable answer. I think also it's just the the feeling like you don't want to let somebody else down, but this goes back to this idea of like, what is it that you want to do? Do you want to be there or are you just doing it as a favor to someone else? And if you're doing it as a favor, then what's the reasoning behind that favor? Right. Are you trying to get something else out of this right. entirely? <laughs> it, it, it's the kind of thing that if you fully live your life this way, the people around you know that about you. So when you are there, they're excited and they know you're fully there. And when you show up, they know that you're 100% there. If you can't make it, then I think, I think, I mean, I haven't asked people, but I suspect that they know if I'm not going to attend something or not going to participate, it's because I know I can't give my all. Yeah. And I think they appreciate that. Taking a quick break from Danielle to shout out my sponsor, Jaybird. And what I love about this company is that the people making the headphones out in Park City are a committed bunch of athletes of all types, from runners to cyclists, dedicated to making products for all athletes. And that means that they know what runners like me are really looking for in their headphones. The new Run XT True Wireless, they're great because they're no hassle. Seriously, within 10 minutes of wearing them for the first time, I was hooked. And that's not something I say often about headphones. What I love about these is that there's nothing dangling around my neck to bother me. They're sweat proof, which means the audio quality is great from the second I put them on to mile 10 and beyond. They come with a bunch of different interchangeable tips and what they call wings, which is great because that means you can customize your fit to exactly what your ear shape is. And that also means they're not going anywhere. They're not falling out which is clutch. Plus the four hour playtime is perfect for someone who's a sub for marathoner. Am I right? <laughs> right now, listeners can receive 20% off a pair of their just released Run XT true wireless headphones and free shipping through the end of March. Just head on over to jbirdsport.com. Use the code hurdle at checkout to take advantage. Again, that's jbirdsport.com. Use the code hurdle to get 20% off your Run XT True Wireless. Let's get back to it. You're holding all these big positions at these great companies. You're all in an Apple. You're all in an Pete's. You joined the team here in 2017, but a little bit before that, mm -hmm. you have uh, a little bit of a dialogue with yourself based mm -hmm. on something that happened at sure. work. Sure. I think it was about eight years ago when I went into a new VP role at Pete's Coffee. I was in a conversation where we were talking about growth and opportunities. And there was a conversation which somebody mentioned to me that I really had to work on my executive presence. and. I really had no idea what executive presence was. And in fact, I don't think the person actually knew what executive presence was because when I looked it up, it was it was a little bit about, you know, confidence and trust and things that I think I do have. But what I think they were trying to say is that I wasn't carrying myself like a traditional, typical buttoned up exec and that I needed to behave, dress, 
speak in a way that was more aligned with people of my job title. And it really caused me to go into the spin because I was always confident because quite frankly, I was always successful at what I did. And so this feedback threw me because I thought, well, I don't even know if I know how to do those things. And it wasn't, it didn't make me angry. It didn't even make me upset. I just felt really concerned because I sincerely did not know how to do those things. I, I mean, I was the best version of myself, which is what I thought made me good at my job. So I thought, If I start changing all these things about who I am so that I fit into this box, how am I going to still be good at the things that make me good? And I I mean, one of the things that makes me good, I think, is that I'm approachable. I connect with people. I don't have a power trip. I don't carry the mystique that I think is associated with executive presidents because I am available. And those things, I, I think, have helped me be successful. So I spent probably, I don't know if it was weeks or months going through this period of like, well, maybe I should just consider a different job because I'm clearly not this corporate professional and I'm, I'm not going to be able to be that person. So maybe I should do something else. And there really weren't a lot of examples. I mean, Steve Jobs is probably one of the biggest examples, especially for men, that says you can be successful and not wear a suit, right? But there weren't really a lot of examples and there still are not a lot of examples of women who don't, you know, try and wear the perfect heel to, you know, a party, which is something that I honestly like. I, I mean, I would rather like take apart a car engine, which I have no idea how to do, <laughs> than try and pick the perfect heel. I, I don't even know what that is. But, right. um, but you know, the the notion that I was supposed to behave in a certain way was was really elusive to me. And so I went through this internal journey around what I should actually be doing with my life. I think I even saw a life coach. I mean, I was really like, what am I going to do about this? And um, I'm going to have to, I mean, I was really like, I'm going to have to compromise who I am. And, you know, I'm going to have to you know, start you know, really thinking about being politically correct when I say something, because, you know, who knows you know, what, what, where I'm going to go wrong. Um, and, you know, in this time period, I was, I was talking to friends and I was, you know, I, I lived in Oakland, so I, I was doing a lot of running around Lake Merritt. And, you know, I realized that my friends were kind of a motley crew. I mean, I have a lot of artists and writers and musicians. And I thought, God, I'm not even surrounded by these corporate people. Like, I'm so not qualified to be a corporate person. I don't, I don't know these people. I'm not of these people. I wasn't raised. I was raised, you know, a very working class Italian family. So I wasn't even like groomed to be uh, an executive. And so I really went through this period of being like, I'm just not qualified to do this. And so I should probably reconsider my life. And I, I don't. I don't know exactly what the moment was, but I know I was running around the lake and listening to a podcast. And in the podcast, um, the, the the guy I was listening to made some comment about, you know, live your life till it makes you cry. And I don't know what it was specifically about that expression, but it sort of tapped into me like this idea of like fully participating, fully being present, being totally who you are. And it occurred to me that if I wasn't completely who I am, in every situation, then I was going to come up short. And it was a really pivotal moment for me because it was at that time, like it was like a flash of lightning. I mean, I haven't gone back since. And it was as of that day that I was like, this is who I am. This is who I'm going to be. I'm going to be successful in this format. (laughs) And um, I'm going to use all the things that make me unique to help me be successful. And the journey has been amazing ever since because it's just like, I unlocked the secret that the people in the, you know, C-suites weren't sharing, which is basically there's all this information out there to hold you back. And most people fall into the trap of listening to it and then they'll get stuck. Yeah. And then we're still at the top alone and we've got a space for ourselves. Once I unlocked that, I was like, holy shit, like you can actually be who you are and be successful and the more unique you are and the more things about you that are different and the more you tap into that, actually the more successful you could be because it's actually the things that make you stand out that make you successful, not the things that make you fit in. But nobody nobody tells you that early on. Everybody's really busy trying to force you into this really particular lane and it can be, it can be soul sucking. Yeah. But um, I'm grateful that I had uh, the opportunity to come out of that experience yeah. and um, that I'm sitting in front of you today and I'm not wearing like, you know, I, I don't want to stereotype because I'm sure there's a lot of very successful <laughs> women who wear, you know, pantsuits and heels and 
have a bob or whatever it is, whatever the rules are around it, have a bob. Um, <laughs> whatever the rules are around it. But, um, you know, I, I just feel like, and hopefully those people are doing it because they don't feel like they have rules either. And they're just being their true self. They like but the bob. They like the bob. They've always liked the bob. So, I mean, I've just suddenly one day realized that there are no rules and that um, you can do life, you know, as who you are. And, and that was really freeing. Special. Special. It's interesting to me a couple of things. One, I knew you were Italian the second we sat down together. <laughs> this is obviously why this is going so well. Um, and two, it's funny to hear you talk about this because talking about this kind of like out-of-body experience and you're questioning all that you know, it sounds a little bit parallel to when you and your wife are thinking about how you have to raise your kids and your wife has these guidelines that she right. feels like she needs to follow right. to be a good parent. And you're like, you don't need to follow these guidelines. That's nothing important right. here. And all of a sudden someone's like, this is how you should be as an executive. And you're like, whoa. Right. I mean, they're, they're and you're rules. more nervous. You're they're, more nervous about the rules and the executive than you are about running your household. Yeah. Well, I think that's partially because of the order of things, for sure. Once I got comfortable with the idea of no rules. But um, I mean, there are rules in every role we have in life. Right. You have rules as a as a daughter, as a parent, um, as, you know, a coworker, as, you know, whatever. I, I think there's all these rules and we all know the rules. And, um, you know, many people try very hard to follow those rules. One day I just decided I wasn't following any of them anymore. Yeah. And by the way, my wife would kill me if I didn't say she's really come around. <laughs> and uh, she now has really embraced this idea of not trying to be the perfect parent. And I think we're both a lot happier as a result. I think a lot of parents are constantly embracing this idea that they don't have to be the perfect parent. Yeah. I mean, I'm embracing the idea that I don't have to be a perfect podcaster or a perfect journalist <laughs> or right. just perfect, really. Right. So. Perfect is boring. Perfect is boring. I love that saying. I'm going to take that away with me. Put it in my pocket for later. Take it. Okay. So you mentioned uh, running around a lake. Mm -hmm. How else do you chill out? Um, I I actually, it's I, I run around a lake now again too. So I live in, I live in Silver Lake. So I, I run around the lake there usually. Um, I And I do some, you know, home exercises. But probably my most relaxing activity where I can totally get out of my head is um, karaoke. Oh, I, I have to tell the people at home that I walked into Danielle's office and there's microphones hanging from the ceiling. <laughs> Not real ones, fake ones, but it was a birthday prank, yeah. supposedly. Well, it was, a, it was a decoration. A birthday decoration. <laughs> karaoke. What kind of, but okay, I, I have to be honest. I have a go-to karaoke song. Okay. It's Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire. Of course, that's a great one. That's <laughs> a great what's one. Yours? What's yours? Um, uh, my go-to, I do love Billy Joel, and Piano Man's definitely up there. Oh, yeah. But um, I'd say my go-to is Rocket Man by... Um, oh, Elton John. Elton John. <laughs> Someone sometimes. Yeah. You're, You're just going around the right? lyrics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. So karaoke is how we chill out. Yeah. So now you're in this position at Tender Greens. Uh, do you feel in your role here that there's like a certain amount of pressure to be really in tune with what you're eating and your health and like your your overall picture of well-being? I wouldn't say there's pressure around it. I would say there's a lot of awareness around eating well. Yeah. And... You know, I was a Tender Greens customer for years before I started working here. So I was always a fan of the food. I don't think I always understood what made it so great, mm -hmm. um, just the quality of the ingredients and, and the um, skill set of the executive chefs and the freshness of the food. But um, I, I was always a fan of it. I did, however, still partake in other sort of unhealthy things. Like, you know, I'd say my, my vice would be like Diet Coke, right? So... I would still drink Diet Coke and I would still occasionally like eat chips and things like that. And it's not that I don't do those things anymore, but I've become way more aware of the idea of sort of additives and unnatural ingredients mm -hmm. because being here and hearing so many stories and being around these chefs and talking to the farmers and understanding the lengths we go to to make sure we provide really clean, delicious food and that so many people are huge fans of the product because it's really important to them to eat that kind of food mm -hmm. and to not even necessarily stay healthy, but just eat delicious food that they can feel good about that doesn't make them feel like shit later. You know, I mean, it's like right. once people start doing that, 
they start to realize, oh, something's different. And so we, you know, we cater lunch here every single day. So literally if I'm in the office, I'll eat tender greens every day for lunch. And if I'm in the field, I'm usually visiting restaurants. So I very often eat tender greens when I'm on the field. I feel better. I just feel better. I mean, it's, it's, um, when, when I do randomly go, like we're on a, like a long drive on highway five and you that's a really long stretch of road. You're getting better at this podcast thing that you understand. You need to to explain what your quick references are. It goes from one side of California to the other side of California. There's a lot of fast food along the way. And it's, it's very much the time when many of us take that opportunity to have this guilty pleasure to, to stop at a, you know, Taco Bell or whatever it may be. And, um, I've, since I've been working here, I've definitely have the sense of like, what what's in this? Like I don't I don't know what the ingredients are, and because I know so much more about the variations of ingredients that exist out there in the world, right. I've realized like who knows what the hell could be in the food. Like it just didn't even occur to me that the, there was a possibility that that food could be old or that it could you know the 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 meat that people could be using were you know um, were sourced from inhumane conditions or un, you know safe conditions or that you know things could be stale or old or have additives like it's, those things just weren't as part of uh, a part of my radar so there's no pressure but there's definitely a sense on my part that I want to be aware of what I'm putting in my body when you say that you're using clean ingredients what are you talking about when you yeah. say that so when you get food straight from the source and the food is you know raised in you know so it's it's grown in the in the most enriched soil without chemicals and that food is directly shipped to the restaurant that day you can serve that food without adding as many seasonings and salts and still have it taste fresh the same is true with with protein products the same is true with um you know carbohydrates the 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 pure the food in its birth the better it will taste if it's served fresh. And so very often, you know, when you're eating food, I mean, obviously the the worst case scenario is people who are adding things into things like meat just because it's cheaper to not have it be 100%. Right. So if you have something like beef and, you know, it was fed on a grass diet and it was, you know, you know, I mean, this sounds strange, but actually the stress of a cow can actually affect the taste of the meat. So I know this. I believe that. So, so there, these, these cows that are eating grass, they're not in a stressful environment. Um, and you know, I mean, inevitably it's not a great outcome for them, but you know, um, when they get to the restaurant, it's all very fresh and it's served by an executive chef who knows how to cut it, who knows how to serve it. They salt it lightly, but you know, it's not filled with all kinds of other things because it doesn't need to be. So that's what I mean by clean. I mean, all of our, all of our dishes really have, you know, just a handful of ingredients and they're all very obvious ingredients. Right. And even if they're unique or more exotic ingredients, they're not meant to be hiding anything. They're meant to enhance. Right. I actually love that. I was reading about, uh, someone was providing feedback that they felt weird that the lettuce wasn't smaller and the feedback from the company was, well, if we don't cut the lettuce, it stays fresher for longer. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) And then it's, it's, it is big. Yeah. And it's, but it's just, it's just interesting that like even something as small and minuscule as a detail like that is something that you guys kind of take into consideration. Absolutely. quick break to give my sponsor athletic greens some love. I have made a major breakthrough this week in that I turned down a happy hour beverage in favor of athletic greens. Now don't freak out. If you know me, you know, I love a good glass of red and don't worry that came later on, but I've just gotten to this point where I know how great I feel having athletic greens as a part of my daily routine with the greens powder in my diet, which I shake up with about 10 ounces of water, give or take every single day. I feel more energetic, less bloated. My digestion feels better. I'm just better. They're offering her to listeners a special deal. It's 20 travel packs a $99 value for free with your first purchase. Just head on over to athleticgreens.com slash hurdle to claim it. No code necessary. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash hurdle. Let's get back to it.
this is your first job that's been strictly in food. I mean, I guess Pete's mm, different, different, just different beast. Yeah. Okay. So this is your first job that's been strictly in food. So what has been one of the biggest challenges coming into a kind of niche like this? Well, the restaurant business operationally is really complex. Yeah. And so really learning, I mean, especially because we make everything from scratch. So we have, you know, ovens and hoods and, you know, we have um, all the various, you know, things that are required to make every kind of food. So like learning about how the operations of a kitchen work has been really interesting to me. I mean, my background's in operations, so it's usually a strength of mine, but coming in here, I felt like, you know, I didn't know anything because just learning how to run a kitchen is really specific. There's the perishability of food, there's the supply chain of food, there's, you know, things like, you know, you have to be aware of, you know, we had this big romaine crisis recently, which, mm -hmm. you know, doesn't exist in the blowout business. Yeah. So, you know, being really aware of the fact that there's a whole, sequence of events uh, from the food getting from the farm to, you know, the, the consumer that can go wrong has been really fascinating and challenging. And then also learning all of the stuff that I just mentioned to you about what makes the food different, what makes it fresher, what makes it taste better. All of our restaurants are run by classically trained uh, executive chefs, so they all have these strong culinary backgrounds. So really learning from them how foods are made in, in the best possible way to make them taste really good, but without reducing the nutritional quality. It's, right. It's been a lot to learn, but it's been great. I'd love to dial it back a little bit and talk a little bit more about uh, your executive strategy, internal dialogue, moving forward from that mm -hmm. scenario. Mm -hmm. So you come to terms with the type of leader you are and the type of woman you are in business and, and honestly a lot more about who you are in general, both in the door and out of the door. And do you find that this realization uh, inspires you to move forward in your career in a different way? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does in a lot of ways. Um, one, just from a practical standpoint, I think feeling really comfortable with the idea that there's no one right answer for how to do things. There's no one right way to be and feeling confident allows me first and foremost to hire an, an amazing executive team because something that's incredibly important to me is that they all know more than I do. So, you know, my, you know, my head of marketing has to know way more about marketing than I do. My head of operations has to know way more about operations than I do so that I can always get the best possible advice and guidance from them. Yeah. I'm pretty good at listening for what makes sense. But, you know, I think having people who are willing to push back and, and one of my rules is if, if we make a decision here and it goes out in the wild and it fails and anybody in this room says, you know, we shouldn't have done it that way, that's a disaster for me because that means that somebody didn't feel comfortable before it got out there to say, this isn't a good idea. Mm. And I hold them I hold them responsible for that. So sometimes some CEOs can have a problem with people not giving them feedback or being honest, but I require it of them. Right. So part of it is is that because I sort of coach them to be like I am in the sense of if you're confident and you feel good about what you're doing, just try it, push it, you know, put something out there and don't worry about how it's going to make other people feel because we're probably going to come up with something really interesting as a result. Right. So it affects my leadership in that way because I think I encourage that same sort of behavior. In terms of my own career, I don't have any sense of limitation around what I can do. I mean, for me, it's the most important thing is that I love what I'm doing and I feel passionate about it and that I'm excited about it. And when I don't feel that way, I'm, I'm fine leaving. I don't feel like I have to say I'm going to be here forever because it's not, you know, I won't be. I'll, I'll be here as long as I'm challenged and as long as I feel like I'm providing the best version of what somebody can provide in this role. But then I'll have my next adventure and I don't know what it will be. And as long as it doesn't require me to have, you know, a medical degree or something like that, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure I'll do it, you know, because there are lots of things I've taken on that I didn't know how to do and I just figured it out. I love the idea. I hire people that are smarter than me. I think there can be sometimes like a little bit of a complex, like you're trying to reel it in. You don't want to feel uncomfortable, but the right person in a leadership position wants to get a little uncomfortable because they want to get pushed sure. to, to the next level. If you're not willing to get pushed to the next level, then you're always going to be in the exact same spot. Yeah. You know, it, it not only pushes me, but it, it pushes them because they challenge each other. Yeah. And, you know, if if we have a meeting and um, there's not some friction or discomfort or even, you know, if the fight breaks out, like then I feel like it wasn't a successful meeting. Yeah. 
because everybody's really, really understanding their version of what success looks like. And so I don't want my head of operations to be thinking about the best version of marketing. And I don't want my HR person to be thinking about operations. I want them all think about what the best version of their job is and to go for it. And if that conflicts with somebody else, then they need to, they need to work through it. And we end up in really great places because we're not all in this group think mode. Right. I, ha- I have a question and, and excuse me if it's out of line, but I'm kind of curious to know when that person criticized your executive strategy, do you think at all there was any commentary on your sexuality in there? I think um, nothing's out of line for me, by the way. Well, um, I, I, I always <laughs> want to be PC on the podcast. No, I totally, how people are going to understand these yeah, questions. No, and I, I appreciate it. I feel like that's something that I'm kind of curious about. Yeah. I think it may have been a byproduct of my sexuality because I, I mean, you see, I'm like, I'm wearing torn jeans, which I guess in these days, they're very trendy. Almost as trendy as the bob sometimes. Exactly. Well, these days, really, you need to be wearing the uh, torn jeans and the combat boots. But um, (laughs) back then, uh, I pretty much have dressed the same since I was 12. Yeah. So I think it may have been a commentary on my sexuality. I think... It may have been a a commentary on my overall presence, which certainly, I mean, we're all sort of a product of of who we are outside work. And um, I, you know, I, when I grew up, I was a tomboy and, you know, not saying that all tomboys become lesbians, don't worry. (laughs) But um, I think I just have always had the style and, and, you know, this, this may not sound PC, but um, I don't think I had that same desire or drive to appeal to men mm-hmm. who quite frankly are usually in the leadership positions yeah um the person who said this to me happened to be a male i think this is that's actually like a strong suit I, that I think puts you a at, a, at an advantage it does you know what it, it puts me an advantage it also puts me an advantage with other women yeah so the other thing that's interesting and again i think the female dynamic and the female corporate dynamic even in the last five years has dramatically changed and this next generation they're like off the charts they're so advanced but there's definitely been these times in my career where I experienced a lot of like females like being sort of jealous and competitive towards each other in this way that I was able to observe from afar because I never felt that. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of this strange thing that I even remember saying to someone at one point, like I, I never had the sense of I was competing. I never really felt like I was competing with either gender because I sort of felt like I was in my own category. Not that orientation and gender are, are, aren't different things, but I just didn't have to follow the same path. So I wasn't like, I was, it was like apples and oranges. So I, I sort of always had the advantage of being like the only orange, which is kind of a funny reference. <laughs> the only orange. The only orange. I've got a, I'm curious, what is on the horizon uh, for tender greens, except maybe some more states, <laughs> obviously some more stores. Yeah. So uh, we're going to be growing quite a bit and we're going to be expanding quite a bit in uh, New York. And in Massachusetts, we are looking over the next couple of years at the South and the Midwest and um, other states. Uh, The other thing that's going to be changing is we're going to have a little bit more newness to our menu. Mm -hmm. You know, we have some great menu items and they are tried and true and they're the best versions of what they are, but they've been on the menus for a long time. Mm -hmm. So we're going to see some changes to the menu that's going to add, you know, some interest i think we are going to continue to have new seasonal favorites which is something we started last year so you know you'll see some things like you know albacore tuna and you know potentially something like lobster you'll see wagyu beef next year so Mm there will be some interesting items that i don't think anybody else offers i will say that the whole idea of mixing up the menu it can be good and it can be bad it could because be, yeah. so tender greens still a small situation in New York City, a competitor sweet green large operation in New York Correct. City. Sometimes when they mix up the menu on the staples, <laughs> there's like a mass right. revolt. Right. No, and I've got to be careful because anybody in LA listening to this might be panicking right now. The staples will not be removed. Do not remove. The we staples. will not be removing the staples. There's some. There's some items that you know people eat every single day. We're not going to be changing those items, but we have been testing items 
over the last six months. And we found that there were some new favorites that just came in seasonally that we're going to be adding to the menu permanently. So for example, into that, we had a Mediterranean steak salad that we launched in spring of this year that was through the roof and people just absolutely loved it. And it was meant to be a seasonal item. And once we took it off the menu, like my email box was just bombarded with, why don't you have this anymore? There's a few versions of that that will go on the menu permanently. Got it. And you actually just said something that's kind of interesting to me. Can people just like hit you up? Oh, Can yeah. I just shoot, <laughs> shoot you an email? Well, you know, we have we have a uh, head of hospitality here who all the emails go to, but um, I'm also CC'd on them. So yeah. I read them all. That is, it's like one of those things. It's like sometimes you want to relinquish control and sometimes you don't want to relinquish control. And when you don't, you get to sneak in and yeah. see what's going on in the I front line. I sit quietly in the background and, and just <laughs> read and jump in very infrequently. What would you say has been one of the best pieces of advice that you've been given in your career? One of the best pieces of advice I was given, which is very specific to me, is something really simple, which is pick your battles. You know, I think if you're a passionate, driven person, it's easy to just jump all over everything. And for me, there are times when you could just let things go. A lot of things resolve themselves. And so, you know, being able to just let things go that don't have a huge, long lasting impression has been really important. Um, And then, you know, I don't know if it was given to me or if it was, you know, miraculously sent to me, but I think just be yourself. Be yourself and um, focus on honing your strengths. One thing I was told along the same lines is, you know, don't worry so much about your weaknesses. Mm. We all have weaknesses. If your weaknesses happen to be the most important thing in your job, you're probably in the wrong job. But other than that, focus on your strengths. We all have weaknesses and don't waste your time. I'm really digesting this line. If your weaknesses happen to be the most important thing in your job, then you're probably in the wrong job. What if you really want to be doing your job? Maybe it's just kind of time to, term, time to come to terms with the idea that you shouldn't be doing it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I guess you're right. Like no, if I wanted to be a professional painter, it would be a really bad idea. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Even if I really wanted it. Right. You have to have, you know, you have to have a skill and the competencies that align with what you want to be doing. Maybe that's when your quote unquote job actually just becomes your hobby. Yeah. Like you could paint for a hobby and you don't need to get paid for it. Exactly. Okay. The way I wind down on the podcast every single time, have you had the opportunity to give yourself in your time at Pete's getting this criticism about your uh, executive style? Mm -hmm. You had a chance to give yourself a piece of advice back then looking at it now. What would you tell yourself at that point in your career? I would tell myself to trust my instincts. That's it. That's it. That's it. Okay. I like it. I dig it. Thanks so much for sitting down with me. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate your time. Please take a moment, leave a quick review of the podcast by clicking the link with the description to this episode. We all face multiple hurdles in life. I want to hear about yours. Reach out to me at emily at hurdle.us. Connect with the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at hurdle podcast. Danielle, where do they find you? Where do they find Tender Greens? Give us the lowdown. Yeah, so tendergreens.com. And you can find me at danielle.bruno at tendergreens.com. And you can also find me on Instagram. She just gave you her email, so she really wants to know how you feel. I do. (laughs) I am at Emily Abadi. Another hurdle conquered. Catch you guys next time.